Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. Author and researcher Mike Ricksecker have a fantastic interactive class for you this evening as we dive back into the world of ancient Egypt. Yeah, on Edge of the Rabbit Hole last night with my co-host Victoria Monday at the end of the show, I did mention that we were going to be kind of uh, getting back into a couple of those topics from earlier this year that were really popular. And of course, Egypt was one of those topics that was very uh, popular since did the two week, the two week tour out there came back with all this information. We had three classes back then during the summer, we have the, uh, the online course on connecting the universe portal.com, which has like 10 and a half hours worth of footage with, you know, the full travel vlog, the classes, all kinds of behind the scenes footage, all that wonderful stuff. And we just have more. <laughs> we have more. I, I, there was no way for me to get it all out there. So we're continuing to do that. I just, we needed to take a break back then because uh, it was a lot of Egypt all at once. Uh, so we're, we're coming back around here at the end of the year. All right, let's go ahead and get to the class question for the evening which was, which secret from ancient Egypt do you want answered most? And I had a nice picture of the Sphinx there with the, uh, with the question. I took that photo out there in Egypt back in June and had a, had a few questions there. Actually, Victoria had a ton of questions. I'm not going to be able to do all of those, Victoria. <laughs> Although I can see why you would want many of those answered. A lot of them had to do with uh, the American Southwest and its connections to Egypt, which I will touch on briefly a little bit later on. Uh, but I'm not going to get into ant people and all that just yet. But she wanted to know, what is beneath the Sphinx? So that's one of those million-dollar questions. What is beneath the Sphinx? Because we hear all of these different tales uh, you know, going as far back, I would say as far back as Edgar Casey talking about there uh, being a room under the right paw. It's debatable depending on which way you're looking at the Sphinx, which paw is he referring to. But there is a cavity under there. We know this for for sure. Uh, Robert Schock and John Anthony West back in the early 90s did some seismic testing there. And they did find that there was a cavity underneath the Sphinx, underneath that paw. And they were stopped immediately from progressing any further. But it goes back even further than that, further than Casey uh, postulating this, this cavity under the paw. If you look at original photos of the Sphinx, it used to have this hole in the head. Now, this hole has since been filled in, and a lot of people speculate that this once, uh, you know, helped to mount a crown onto the Sphinx. And you can kind of see that, yeah, there's another ridge there where, you know, a hole in that ridge line uh, could hold a crown that was on the Sphinx. There's evidence of, uh, of the Sphinx once having a beard as well. And you can find pieces of that beard in different museums, but we don't know where the crown is. Uh, that has been lost to time. And that hole has since been filled in. But early explorers into the area ventured down inside that hole. One of those uh, most famously, which was George Reisner. And when he came back uh, from his travels, and he described what was there within the Sphinx through that hole in the head. And he described multiple chambers within the head. Now, to me, they would have to be rather small because when you're standing there looking at the thing, it, it's, I mean, the Sphinx itself as a whole is big, but the head is actually small-ish. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, holding uh, large rooms, it's like, well, I, I, they're not going to be all that large. I mean, the illustration that I'm showing here for those that are listening to the podcast later or the syndicated shows, uh, you're not going to see these slides from the presentation tonight. If you want to be able to see that, join us live Wednesdays nights, 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time through the Connected Universe Portal. It's ConnectedUniversePortal.com. 30-day free trial for you uh, just for trying it out. 
and you get all kinds of other material besides the the weekly class. Uh, there's there's all kinds of uh, Q and A videos. There's there there is all the Egypt stuff, which is you know ten and a half hours worth of video right there, and all kinds of articles and, and other treats for you. Um, but in any case, him going down into this, it, you can see the couple of chambers, and then underneath, you see these other chambers where there seems to be some sort of passageway and then almost some sort of temple-like structure. And they, it's harder to see in this particular photo, but there is a small pyramid down there, actually kind of the inverse of a pyramid, like a chamber in the shape of a pyramid. And so it's speculated that these rooms are within and under the Sphinx. And then, of course, here's the picture of Zahi Hawass, uh, you know, popping up from a hole underneath the Sphinx. So there's there's space underneath the Sphinx. I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to view it, if they'll ever let anybody down there to tour. Uh, special access, I mean, Zahi Hawass, he's going to have whatever access that he wants. But um, I, I've come to learn that if things do become accessible there, then it's going to take a long, long time for it to be made accessible. We ventured into the Bent Pyramid while we were there in June. Uh, that was not uh, readily accessible up until like two years ago. Because of COVID shutting everything down, we ended up being like one of the uh, first ones in there, not the first. We were the first into the new, uh, newly opened crypt at Dindara, uh, which was very cool. But again, and I've talked about it before, going into that crypt, you can see why it took 20 years for them to open it back up. And that's because different, different things are missing from there. So Victoria, like I said, had other questions here. I'm going to cover one more and, um, because the other Southwest stuff, like I said, there are connections. So I will, I will touch on that part a bit later. Uh, so another question she had here was when you're in the great pyramid on the solstice, does the sun align with any of the shafts? If so, what's illuminated? Um, no, the, the shafts don't align with the sun. Uh, some believe that they align with stars or at least once had aligned with stars. Um, we, we talk about the the procession in that you know because of the earth's wobble you know the star alignments change over long long periods of time and at one point those shafts would have been lined up with particular stars not anymore as far as the uh, solar alignment um there's an alignment there in the giza plateau with the sphinx on the uh spring and fall equinoxes so when we were there for the solstice in june um, it was really for the the energy that's there on the on the summer solstice because you still have that going on there and you have the telluric current uh, there within the earth that goes right through the pyramid it's one of those uh, crossing points and so that was a real treat just being in there on that particular day with that renewed energy. And this was the start of the, of the Kepler cycle. So this was the renewing energy uh, coming into the pyramid at that time. So um, in Victoria, follow-up question is the Sphinx hollow. It's not carved out of block. Is it actually, it, it is carved out of the bedrock there. Um, it was not built. When you look at the paws, you see blocks there, and that's those are ancient repairs. It was originally just carved one single block, and so the chambers that are within the Sphinx would have been carved out of that that bedrock that's there. So a lot of a lot of people believe that it was once a yarding, and that um, they carved the yarding into the Sphinx, and then down into because you have that whole sphinx enclosure area uh that the uh, right in front of it is basically the uh they don't call it the sphinx temple but basically it's a sphinx temple because it's right there in front of it uh those blocks that that is made out of uh would have come from that sphinx enclosure and they were placed right there 
uh, very, very ancient, uh, quite a unique area. Uh, Tom, how about a comet or solar flare? I mean, those happen. <laughs> those are those are completely unpredictable. Um, but you see things like comet comets and what probably are solar flares uh, recognized within the written record. Um, you know, th those aren't any, well, you can predict some comets. I, sh I should take that back a little bit because like Halley's Comet, um, you can predict that. Uh, but but others are are seemingly random um, or, you know, there would be some sort of celestial activity that happens in those things are are noted within the record. But they don't. They don't really align to those particular things. So, and then Jennifer LeBay here, how did they build it all? And that's another one of those million dollar questions. How did they build it all? Um, you know, some of the things, you know, kind of, um, I guess the newer, <laughs> the newer buildings, we have a better idea of how they were built, but some of the others, uh, you know, are just an absolute mystery. You know, we don't know how they, they built those pyramids. And, and I know that, you know, this isn't, you're, you're not necessarily looking for the answer because, you know, we can't give it. It's one of those. That's why we call it an ancient secret of Egypt, because we actually don't know that answer. You know, even when it comes to the obelisks, you know, we know the quarry in Aswan where they where they got those. I've been to that quarry and you know, there's an unfinished obelisk right there. And you can see where they took others out of. You can actually see these grooves, these markings where they were using some sort of machinery. Um, it's blatantly clear. Uh, you see these like track marks, these perfect grooves, chunk, 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 chunk some sort of machine that that helped them out. Um, but we don't know what exactly that was. And somehow they put it on a barge to go down the Nile. Uh, it would have to be a superly impressive barge then, since you're talking about hundreds of tons of block, you know, because it's one single piece with this obelisk that's going onto the thing. And of course, the question is, how did they move it from the quarry to the barge and then from the barge to where they set it up um like at luxor or wherever they were putting it no idea how they how they moved those things and of course the big question how they build the pyramids so all right let's go ahead and uh and get into our discussion for the evening um and you guys can continue to throw questions in there and i see that you are tom and victoria thank you very much and uh, others that are here feel free to do that as well so i do want to do a quick little review here like i said it's kind of prepping us for the ireland and egypt discussion next week which i'm really looking forward to um, so to start off uh we're going to talk about the Ouroboros. so it this is an ancient alchemical symbol uh, it's known as the oldest allegorical symbol in alchemy. And in this context, basically, it represents the concept of eternity and endless return. So basically, the beginning and the end, the ongoing cycle. Uh, you know, you could talk about the cycle of life. Really, we're talking about the cycle of the universe, the cycle of, you know, all kinds of cycles that we see here on Earth. Uh, you you hear a lot in in our different stories you know this has happened before you know almost kind of think think about the the upcoming matrix movie you know this has happened before you know it's a cycle and a cycle and a cycle and a cycle and so the ancient egyptians are recognizing that within because this is from king tut's uh from his tomb so it's representing that uh, cycle of life into the afterlife. So going on into the afterlife and, uh, you know, life renewing again. Also see that in the tomb of Ramses VI. And this one's actually a little bit harder to uh, recognize because, you know, this is a nice circle here at King Tut's tomb in Ramses VI. Uh, it's not so much of a circle. In fact, it looks like a cartouche. You know, the cartouches were used to uh, you know, recognize something important, like a king's name or a uh, 
or a netter, a god's name, you know, something like that. Um, you can see here in Ramsey the Six, it is basically uh, describing him, his life, that he's going to be uh, renewed again. So it's the eternal cycle of time. So Ramses the Six is is an eternal being. Remember, they they viewed their their kings like like gods, and so we see that depicted here. But again, it's it's done as as almost like a cartouche. It's very very different than our our normal Ouroboros. So probably the uh, the most famous one that we that we recognize is is this particular one again it's a you know serpent or a snake eating its own tail when i look at this i guess people generally see it almost kind of like a dragon type figure with and it's got some little feet in there too which is interesting every time i look at this and maybe it has something to do with the color because it's more of that reddish color i always see a fox's head i don't know why that is <laughs> But I see a fox's head whenever I look at this, and I have to kind of almost do a double take. Like, okay, this is not a fox. Uh, but this is a manuscript by uh, Theodoros Pelikonos in 1478. It's actually the copy of a drawing, a lost alchemical tract by Synesius. Remember, we have talked about this before. This is a little bit of, uh, of review. And it's held right now in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Uh, if you want to go view the uh, original, I have I have a, a replica right back there on the corkboard behind me. You can see it there. Above that, you can't see it. Uh, you can only see the very bottom of it is as above, so below. And then a very cool uh, ancient map of Earth. All replicas, but um, keep watching that. I'll, I'll be sneaking some other things on that board here soon. Uh, but what's really, really interesting about this is we explore uh, this symbol. We're, we will continue to do so here as we go into uh, 2022. Uh, as we get into uh, what we know about Synesius and... Did I not, I did not have that in my notes. What in the world? <laughs> Why did I lose that from my notes? I, I tell you, I uh, kind of scrambling to get everything finished up today. Uh, it's been one of those, one of those interesting days. I'll just say that uh, very, very busy. So, okay, so this is what we know about Synesius. Sorry about that. Uh, it takes us back to, you know, the Library of Alexandria. He has those connections there. So Synesius, was, he was a Greek bishop uh, in ancient Libya, and he moved about uh, a little bit throughout the ancient world there. Uh, he was chosen as an envoy in the imperial court in Constant Constantinople, he returned to Alexandria. Now, this is around the year. I guess I should preface this. Uh, this is in AD uh, 373 to uh, 414, around there. So late 300s, early 400s AD. It's around the time of the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. He was there for that. And uh, you may recall, I made some allusions to the fact that uh, Synesius would have been a guy that was there, that if they had saved any of those texts from the Library of Alexandria, he would have been one of the guys there to do that and to help out with that. So he was there when they had the old texts there. So when we look at uh, the Ouroboros and that this is uh, a copy from something Synesius had created that he had written um we're talking about a guy that had access to those manuscripts there at the library of alexandria so this is the connection all the way back there uh which is absolutely amazing um what i want to say here um 
He was later a Christian bishop and, uh, oh, the, the text here, the text of the Ouroboros, okay, which is interesting itself because uh, you see all this text that's around us. So part of it reads, uh, nature rejoices in nature, nature charms nature, nature triumphs over nature, and nature masters nature. And this is not from one nature opposing another, but through the one and the same nature, through the alchemical process with great care and effort. So again, that cycle... Uh, with you know throughout throughout nature um nature rejoicing nature nature charming nature it's all connected all together in all recycling so again we'll we'll keep diving into uh more and more of that symbol but uh you see again the connections here from this symbol that we see all the time i mean i got this honestly i got the thing off of etsy you know, it something we readily recognize today that was drawn in the 1400s from something that was drawn in the early 400s from the Library of Alexandria that's referencing a symbol that goes back into ancient times, uh, which when we're talking about the uh, King of, Tum of King Tut, uh, this is 1332, thereabouts, B.C. That's how far back we're going just with that symbolism there. But we're not done, are we? Okay. So other symbolism that we have examined here. We're going to go to Edfu, and we're start getting into some Atlantis stuff here. Uh, but what, I want you to take a look at this symbol first and uh victoria you were talking about yesterday uh on edge of the rabbit hole about you know having that interest in uh in symbolism and i and i highly recommend the latest episode on johnny enoch's mystery teachings on gaia his uh his episode that he had on ancient symbolism is really really interesting and in seeing how it connects to today like check out the uh the symbolism for 007 from james bond i mean just Cool things like that. He, he gets into some fun ones. But, uh, okay, so this is at Edfu. Initially, this doesn't look like a whole lot. Uh, but basically, that rectangular uh, structure there, that symbol there, is a symbol of the temple. And then the next depiction over is the temple being raised. So imagine these are side by side uh, with each other, the, uh, the, the friezes, the uh, inscriptions on the walls. So next one over, the temple is being raised. What's also, what's also interesting is you see the, the color. Uh, so it's activated. You know, you have this, uh, it's again, kind of within a, a cartouche that, that we're seeing here. Uh, but you have this, this band of energy that's around it well and and the the temple is being raised it's the raising of the temple the raising of the vibration the raising of the energy within the temple so this is depicting that um you know you're having that energy within the temple for a, a varying amount of different purposes so whether that's spiritual energy healing energy of course uh you know we have talked about stargates and things like that before uh, what's interesting about Edfu, keep this in the back of your mind, the, uh, the, the symbolism here of, of raising the temple. What's interesting here about Edfu are these texts, the Edfu temple texts, which describes this journey from a faraway land to Egypt. And a lot of people believe this is in part talking about Atlantis the we're we're going to touch on this uh here a bit actually the original story of Atlantis from Plato we're going to talk about Plato here as well he got that from his uncle six generations prior uh Solon where Solon got it from is a ruin. So Edfu may be our last remnant 
of any of that story. Now, it doesn't read like like Plato. It's not like verbatim or anything like that. It's not kind of it's not like the the Dead Sea Scrolls when we found that and we could we could match side by side, uh, you know, Old Testament books from the Bible and be like, oh yeah, this is this and this is that. It's 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 a bit different. So, I have a video clip here. And you guys that have watched the course material on the Connected Universe Portal, ConnectedUniversePortal.com, those of you that have watched all of that will recognize this. Uh, this is uh, our buddy Johnny Enoch and Mohammed Ibrahim talking about Edfu uh, or the Atlanta story at Edfu. This is just a preview of it. The whole thing is like 11 minutes long or something like that. It's like 11 or 12 minutes long, which you can find as a special feature of the Connected Universe portal uh, in the uh, the ancient Egypt section. But uh, for now, this is a snippet of that. So according to Graham Hancock, he wrote that there is a story written here by the priest talks about Atlantis. But to be honest with you, I don't know where it is. Like, I, well, this I is why we need Johnny. And yeah. I don't think... You're supposed to be over here telling us the Atlantis story. Stop taking off on us. Oh, we've been circling around looking for you guys. You're lying. No, we were. We even tried calling Mary Jane. have been in there the whole time. Step up and let's go. You're up. Better up. I thought you could nip John and you were about to send me a message with the ransom. Okay. Where is the Atlantis story? But we are not very sure about that this is the, the true one because when uh, Graham Hancock was talking about it, he didn't say where. But when I explained this to you three years ago, it was because it talks about the story of immigration and it showed the power of the netters who came uh, through the ocean. Right, but he here's the thing. So remember the lecture that Muhammad gave you guys last night? And he was talking to you about the Atlantis story, where we get it from. We were all discussing this before, right? We think that people think that Atlantis is a Greek story. Mm -hmm. Richard knows this. You can see mm -hmm. it in his eyes. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, is that the Plato, Plato tells us the story that he writes in, you know, we hear about Critias and Tiamias, but his uncle Critias told it to him. Mm -hmm. His uncle Critias got the story from his great-great-great-grandfather, Solon. Mm -hmm. Solon traveled over to Egypt, what it was called Sais. Mm -hmm. And when he came here, he talked to a priest called Sanchi. Said Sanchi said, come here, I got a story to tell you. Mm -hmm. It's a great story. And we believe the story that Muhammad's showing you is the same one he saw in the temple of Nefru. I will tell you, but let me explain a few things first, and then I will show you uh, something else also, something important about the, also the story of creation. In this temple, we are going to see different type or different style of the word Stargate again, like this one. Okay, to make sure you understand that this is a Stargate. Okay, and uh, so that's that's a snippet of it. And you know, Johnny's describing it. We gave him a little bit of ribbing there at the beginning because he was he was actually going around the the temple. Uh, he, he needed to get some clips and some footage for. For Gaia for you know some of the different shows that he's been working on there and so there were times where Johnny and uh, his girlfriend Jujana were uh, they were gone <laughs> like where's Johnny and so uh, he'd caught up to us right at that right at that point so uh, we kind of gave him a little bit of a ribbing for that but uh, he tells a little bit of the Atlanta story there and then much more of that in the in the full uh, clip there on the connected universe portal so real quick though because we were looking at uh, some walls with hieroglyphs there. Uh, so Victoria's wanting to know what's the proper way to read hieroglyphs, left to right, right to left, up to down, down to up. Uh, it it depends. They can read either way. There There is no one way to read it. The, the indicator that tells you is look at the direction that the the people or the animals are looking. And that will tell you which direction to read the hieroglyphs. So, you know, you'll see like one wall, they're all looking to uh, all looking to the right. And the other wall, they're all looking to the left or up or down or whatever. Excuse me. 
that tells you the direction to read the hieroglyphs. That was something that took them a little while when they were figuring that out uh, with the, when they finally got the Rosetta Stone and were trying to figure all that out. That's, that was something that uh, they had a little bit of trouble with was the direction to read it. And uh, so I see uh, Bill Prack is in the house and uh, Jennifer and Maeve have made it as well. So uh, great to see all of you here this evening. So uh, yeah, and there's, there's Bill as well. So, all right. So Bill, Jen, May, Victoria, Tom, everybody else. Great to see y'all. All right. So the reason why we're kind of reviewing a bit about Atlantis here is because when we do the Egypt, Ireland thing next week, we are, or we're focusing on the connections and why these connections may exist. And we're going to, we might go a little off the deep end here by the time we get to the end of tonight. Um, but, but bear with me, but bear with me. So, all right. So that was Atlantis at Edfu. A little bit more here, you know, on the Atlantis connection. And you heard Johnny kind of uh, talk a bit, uh, a little bit about it there. Uh, oh, see, there's, there's my Senecius photo. I had just misplaced it somewhere when we were talking about uh, him earlier. But in any case, we are on to Atlantis and Solon and Plato. So we kind of described the relationship between those two related, but many generations apart. And the story of Atlantis, this magnificent, well, we know that the capital city was magnificent. And this is something that um, I think people kind of misread when, when talking about Atlantis or misinterpret or misunderstand is that Atlantis wasn't just a city. There was a large capital city that was, you know, all of these rings and the temple in the middle. And it, you know, this is the image that we always think of with Atlantis. But it had other cities and colonies out there as well. And those are expressed within the story. And a large chunks of the story from uh, the Critias and Timaeus are, are missing. And the one just kind of abruptly ends. I think it's a Timaeus that just abruptly ends like, mid-story and you're like okay what happened um but they had you know several different kings kind of ruling different areas at the at the same time and they became corrupt and other forces were brought in to destroy atlantis the point is with all of that is atlantis express uh Atlantis expanded far and wide and had connections all over the world. And that part's important. So Solon and Plato, Plato's retelling the story from Solon. Now, where did Solon get it from? We got it from ancient Egypt. So you heard uh, Johnny mention Saïs. It was actually a city in Egypt, completely ruined now. This is actually a drawing from the 1840s of the city of Saïs. So the story is supposed to have come from a priest there known as Sanchis. Now, people debate as to whether or not Sanchis really existed, whether the character of Sanchis existed or not. Uh, Solon did go and talk to the priests there at Saïs. So the, the priests were of... Oh, they were the priests of the goddess Niet. Uh, we'll talk about her in just a moment. What I do want to mention here, though, is when we when we talk about Solon, uh, Sanchis, all that, the reason why that's debated is because the only reference that we have of Sanchis is from Plutarch. Plutarch coming after the fact. So he's relating the story. And that's one of the things that makes all of this so difficult. 
um, and why almost sometimes it seems like we're we're dancing around the stories that you know we have bits and pieces from different eras, different points in time that are retelling the stories, sometimes hundreds of years apart from each other. So, what parts got lost in translation? What parts were retold a little bit of a different way? Um, when Su when Plutarch talks about you know Sanchi's, you know. Where is he getting that from? What's his source material? Because he also, you know, wasn't there with Solon. So Plutarch tells us near near Nilus's mouth, or the Nile River's mouth, by fair Canopus shores, and spent some time in study with Sinophis of Heliopolis. He's talking about Solon here, and Sanchis, the Seti. Uh, I think that's, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. <laughs> the most learned of all the priests from whom, as Plato says, getting knowledge of the Atlantic story, he put it into a poem and proposed to bring it to the knowledge of the Greeks. So that's where we get uh, Sanchis is from, uh, is from Plutarch. So now I mentioned uh, Niet. This is a Egyptian goddess who Sanchis and those in that temple were, were worshiping. Now, the story of Atlantis is supposed to have taken place 9,000 years before Solon. Niet is supposed to be this, she had a lot of different functions, but she is a creator goddess. So she's known as the tutelary goddess of Saïs. Uh, which is basically like a guardian or protector of a particular place. So she was protecting this city, the temple there. Apparently by the 1840s, not anymore, <laughs> but, uh, but she did. So the temple at Esna records an account of creation in which uh, Niet brings forth the nun or the first land from the primeval primeval waters. I did visit Esna while I was there. This is this is that temple, and they're still uh, excavating and restoring it. They're actually doing a fantastic job of restoring it. They don't have all the uh, you know, like before and after photos of that because they had like half done and half was still being worked on when people when they worshiped inside there um, for a while, when the temples were abandoned, people actually lived in there. There's a lot of soot on the ceiling from fires, torches, things like that. So they're doing a fantastic job of restoring that. You can see these, these colors uh, come out. So, and these are, these are some of those colors. And this is, uh, this is basically that creation account as well as you see the moon cycle there. So, when we talk about, uh, you know, bringing forth uh, the nun, the first land from the primeval waters, that's what the boats are are representing here. And even when we go back to Edfu, you, you see the boats. And this is, you know, that transition from, from one land to another. And so we see that here at, uh, at Edfu as well. You can see that there on... Uh, the upper, the upper left, and the lower right, and then uh, in between there, you're seeing all the different cycles of the moon. It's you know, it's absolutely beautiful. You can see some of the old uh, colors that are still within there that have been that have been restored. Uh, again, uh, absolutely beautiful. Some other interesting things about uh, about Niet is that she's also considered the mother of Ra and the mother of Sobek. Sobek was the crocodile deity. We see him, Sobek, at Kamumbo, uh, which is a, another fantastic temple there along the Nile. All these are uh, Esna, Kamumbo, uh, all these, Edfu, all these are along the Nile, not too far from each other. Uh, what's, what's actually really, really cool about this particular temple just wanted to include this real quick, is I, I didn't uh, include the video clip here just because there's a lot of 
crowd noise, and that's not going to play well on the uh, on the podcast when that goes to audio. But this is actually a secret chamber that's between walls. Um, you can see the large blocks on either side. Those were once full walls. And if you go to you know, the Connected Universe member site, get into that Egypt stuff, go to the, the day we were at Kamumbo, and you can watch the walkthrough clip there of how the whole secret entrance worked to be able to get into that secret chamber back there, uh, which was really, really cool. And the question is, what was kept on the in the little enclave there? Uh, you know, maybe some sort of, was it some sort of idol? We, we don't know, but uh, very, very cool. What's also interesting about Kamombo, um, is the whole southern half of the temple is, is dedicated to uh, this crocodile god, Sobek, is that you also see these are representations of ancient medical tools, uh, but they are highly sophisticated for that time. So this is on the back wall. We didn't have a lot of time that we could spin back there. This was actually one of the few crowded places last June. Uh, it's basically, it's proximity because it is actually literally right on the water. Um, it's a place where a lot of the... Uh, tourists get dumped off from the boats it's like one of the primary docking ports uh, so a lot of people just kind of flood right into that temple all the time so it was really crowded when we were there what's also right there talked about Sobek being the, the crocodile god it's actually a museum of uh of representations of Sobek a number of different idols as well as offerings of mummified crocodiles uh quite a few of them actually and there are different styles and variations uh this is just one particular style there are others that were like fully wrapped and had um kind of the eyes done up like some of the um like almost like human type mummies and things like that uh very very interesting place uh so if you get a chance definitely check it out but uh back at esna since we were there talking about Niet. Now, the reason why we keep going on with how everything's connected and uh, the Ouroboros that we started off with, because we see, again, another connection. We, we showed this at Edfu. Here it is at Esna as well. The levitation of the temple. Raising that vibration, raising that energy. And there's Johnny again. <laughs> he's he's pointing it out, the, uh, the levitation. So uh, just on a little side note, the triangular skirt there, so that's a, that's a priest. That's just a regular priest. Uh, one of the uh, primary priests, he would have a longer triangular uh, skirt. But uh, the shorter one is just kind of like your regular standard priest. But again... This levitation of the temple, we saw that back at Edfu. We saw that here. So again, we are seeing these connections you know, throughout ancient Egypt here. But since we're talking about Atlantis connections, Victoria earlier was asking about connections to the American Southwest. And we see that in several places. The place where I love seeing it at is in this symbol, the swirls. And we did a whole class on ancient symbolism. We did a whole class on stargates. And I showed this in both of those classes. So I, I understand it's, it's a repeat here. Uh, but I am absolutely fascinated by this because of all the different places around the world in which we see it. So this is on. This is just one piece of pottery uh, there that's in. Uh, this one was actually in the Nubian Museum. Uh, you see several examples of it in the Cairo Museum and then elsewhere throughout Egypt. But we also see it in places like Chaco Canyon in the American Southwest. And... 
when they when they uh, talk about this at Chaco Canyon, this is in relation to the star people, you know, the, the origins of, you know, where, uh, you know, where the people from Chaco Canyon are supposed to come from. We also see this in Sardinia. With Sardinia, now a lot of people, and I, I didn't include the, the photo of it, a lot of people when they look at architecture from Sardinia, this is a, a painting on a wall, but when you look at the architecture there on Sardinia, you see the circular patterns within the ancient architecture. And there are also these uh, giant beams that were there on Sardinia as well. And so a lot of people relate this to, if not... Atlantis, because people have proposed Sardinia being the site of Atlantis. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, it probably is not, but it could have at least been an outpost uh, of Atlantis, you know, maybe one of those colonies that we were talking about before. So the swirls could also be, you know, some sort of portal or stargate, uh, which we've talked about, you know, many times before. And when we look back at you know, these places in Egypt, when we look at, at stargates, you know, we see the example of the gate and the star, uh, which is back behind us. I love this sign. I always, I, you know, you guys know by now, I love showing this sign. Dear tour guys, kindly don't explain inside this part. We appreciate your cooperation. So uh, they don't want the tour guides explaining what's actually inside there. Now, this is, you know, on the door, this is Hashemsut's temple. And this is outside the door to the Holy of Holies. And you see the, the Stargate symbol there, you know, basically on the door frame. Inside of that, and this is Johnny's photo, you have the cartouche with the stars, another representation of the Stargate. And you go back through all of that uh, uh, footage that we have within the member area and you know, there are a lot of different representations of the Stargate and Muhammad does a fantastic uh, job of explaining all that. In fact, when I do the upcoming tour with Mohammed, that is a primary focus of of the tour, and we're we're basically calling the tour like Stargates of Ancient Egypt. You know, straight up, <laughs> straight up, uh, we're doing Stargates of Ancient Egypt. So that's going to be a lot, a lot of fun uh, going there. And I see you guys have some comments coming in here. Um, yeah, Victoria asking, do you think the labyrinths have a connection to all these swirls? Um, and, and then, uh, she's also saying, uh, also like the Celtic culture spirals everywhere. Yeah. Like Newgrange, uh, you see at Newgrange there in Ireland, again, another connection to Ireland, which I will show that one next week, of course, uh, Newgrange with, with the swirls. Uh, yeah, yeah. You have all those different connections, uh, in the labyrinth, the labyrinths have a connection to the swirls. Victoria, it's it's all connected, but um, I know we need to get into the particulars and in, in everything. Uh, totally understand that. So, got about ten minutes left here, and I haven't quite gone off the rails yet, right? <laughs> so, there were some questions like uh, Jen had before the show: How did they build all of these things? So, let's go to the Great Pyramid. How did they build this? And uh, I mean, that's, that's again, one of those million dollar questions. How in the world did they build this? Now, what's interesting, we've been looking at a lot of things all evening from ancient Egypt with all of these different hieroglyphs. And what's fascinating about the Great Pyramid and you know, a, a couple other, well, you know, most of the pyramids uh, there was fascinating uh, and including the Sphinx, except for the Dream Stella in front of the Sphinx, which was added later. There are no hieroglyphs. There are no hieroglyphs on this whatsoever to tell us anything about it. Now, I will mention that above the king's chamber in one of those uh, resonant chambers up there, one of the gilded areas, there's um, it, it's basically gilded. And then you have these couple of uh, small, really short chambers. And then you have the king's chamber beneath it. In the one is a painted on cartouche that has been debated for years as to if it's authentic or not. Um, 
it doesn't make any sense as to at least to me as to why it would be authentic because if you're trying to commemorate this structure to a particular king why would you hide it in a and just hastily paint it on there uh all the way up in this chamber that nobody nobody should have ever seen they basically had they basically dynamited their way into there uh to get up there so nobody should have ever seen the thing anyway and it was just hastily painted on and there's all kinds of ancient graffiti up there now anyway um so i think it was a much later addition uh, to the pyramid because everything else that is done within there uh, are basically long, straight, very evenly cut structures. What I mean by that, you look at the coffer here, well, you look at the blocks around it. I don't know how well you can see all of that, but they're very large cut blocks. The coffer that's here was also a very large cut block doesn't appear that way anymore because obviously there's been some some damage to it we don't know what happened to the lid we don't know what happened to the debris from that corner um but it happened very very long ago and i've gotten into before how uh the way the lid would have worked on this thing is very different from any other sarcophagus uh that's been found in egypt so this was not a sarcophagus or at least even if it was, if you just want to take out that debate of whether it was a sarcophagus or not, the architecture of it, the the way it was built is different than everything else. So whoever built this was different than who came along afterward. And, you know, you look at the way the sarcophagi were done for like the Valley of the Tomb or the Valley of the Kings and all that. Very, very different from what you're finding here. And then... You see something like this again. Look at the straight cuts here. You know these, the, and these aren't hasty either. You know you see this very perfect pitched roof, very straight sides, very perfectly cut blocks, and then this niche in the queen's chamber that we're looking at that is also very perfectly cut. And I've pointed out before when it comes to this. Uh, mainstream is, is proposing. I mean, they have no idea and, and they have admitted they really don't know what was here, but some of them have proposed, well, you know, maybe it was some sort of, of statue or idol uh, to the king that was put in there. Well, it doesn't explain why you see the hole going into the back. Unfortunately, there was just a bunch of junk that was laid in there. I'm not sure why. There was Behind where I was taking the photo from, there were some boxes there. There were somebody was going to be doing some uh, testing or whatever. They're going to be doing some work in there. Uh, I, I was told that they were going to be doing some experimentation. Uh, but somebody had laid a bunch of junk in there. But basically, this is one of those shafts. I believe it was an exhaust shaft because when you look at that niche, you see this vitrification and this scorching within there so the part that's not perfect is melted rock and I'll zoom in even closer here and you can see the rivulets you can see the burn marks you can see that basically stone was was melted here so okay this magnificent structure here was not built by the dynastic egyptians we've been looking at the dynastic egyptians all night this was not built by them but what i think we're seeing from the dynastic Egyptians is a story that talks about who did build this, you know, their forebearers, their, their forefathers, the people that were there before them. And you see some other ancient accounts in which, you know, from a third person's point of view, talking about the Egyptians where, you know, it states that the Egyptians you know, didn't, didn't build those that they found those and they repurposed them so what the original purpose was you know we still debate today whether the uh, pyramids were you know what's a power plant and all those sorts of things again i think the queen's chambers is something was extremely extremely hot there and i think that the uh, shaft was maybe some sort of exhaust 
shaft. I don't know. But, okay, talking about connections across the world to ancient Egypt. And I just published a book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, in which I'm making connections between Alaska, Antarctica, ancient Egypt. Here's this, what does this look like from the air? It kind of looks like, at least to me, the Great Pyramid with a bunch of snow around it. This is a photo, an aerial photo from Antarctica of an unnamed uh, mountain is what they're saying it is. In one of the uh, mountain, it, it's it's very remote, okay? Nobody has gone out to this thing. So all they have are is, is aerial footage. So, you know, nobody truly uh, knows for certain whether this is a mountain feature, which they do say it is, or if it's a pyramid out there. I mean, it looks perfectly constructed, uh, just like the Great Pyramid. You can see the resemblance from the air to that. Also there in Antarctica, some recently released photos, you see these other interesting lines, you know, people uh, have proposed that they may be walls. Um, jury's still out for me on that. You know, because yeah, the one that's kind of out um, in the I don't know, on the plane there. <laughs> um, it's kind of by this lonesome, but the one that the other one creeps right up into the mountain. So it could be, you know, a feature of that particular range or mountain. But, you know, if these are structures, and especially this one with the pyramid, and when we talk about Alaska, of course, they they talk about the dark pyramid there. That's that's where the connection came in. You know, dark pyramid in Alaska to this in Antarctica to the resemblance here to the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Um you're talking about an extremely, extremely ancient civilization that would have had to have built that, especially down there in Antarctica. Um, because, you know, Antarctica has been down there for a long, long time. It's It's been down there so long that we've, we've discovered it, we've forgotten about it, and then rediscovered it later on. If you look at, and we've talked about this before, if you look at different ancient maps, um, you can see where, you know, ancient cartographers had shown that it was there and then for hundreds of years, it was totally forgotten about. So you have all these world maps without Antarctica. And then in 1820, it was rediscovered. They say, oh, we discovered it, but it was a rediscovery. And so they started including it on the maps again. Um, but it's interesting how some of these ancient maps, which are copies from older maps, you know, or they had multiple uh, maps that were ancient and they were trying to draw something that was accurate using multiple different sources, uh, like the Piri Reese map. Uh, when we, when we talk about that one, uh, he had referred to, uh, many different maps there. Uh, this was in, uh, Constantinople at the time I was in Istanbul. Uh, he had used many different, uh, maps from the Middle East, Turkey, you know, that area. Also some other, um, Maps from other cartographers around the Mediterranean, including Christopher Columbus, um, to, to build this thing out. And it includes Antarctica in this thing. And, and it even shows actually some animals there, which is kind of interesting. How are there animals in Antarctica when you're talking about like, you know, 1500s? That's, you know, really puzzling. But that aside, Antarctica as all these other land masses were not where they originally were. You know, we, we've seen the map of, of Pangea before. There are other maps, too, of different phases of the world. And what I'm going to show here is Gondwana. And you can see from this depiction here, Antarctica, India, Australia, Africa, South America, you see how they are, their land masses are all connected to each other. What's interesting here for us is the connection between Antarctica and Africa, that these, these land masses were once connected. So you could easily have an 
ancient civilization that was able to traverse uh, those land masses that had the same ingenuity and know-how to be able to build you know these large massive structures like this and I know we're getting uh, to the end of our class here something that I have proposed out there when it comes to the exploration of Antarctica you know there's a reason why the Nazis were down there they were looking for something and I think it's what you know, we're down there now looking for yeah there's a lot of great scientific research that's going on down there to look about to you know find out about ancient climates and you know we're getting into different microbes and stuff like that fine fantastic to kind of give us that overall uh picture of what the ancient world looked like from a uh you know from a global climate perspective but i think there there is technology that they're down there looking for i'm not necessarily talking about aliens although some people will say aliens uh but i think they're there are some extreme, extreme ancient structures there trapped under the ice. And that one of the things that they're looking for is if there are these ancient civilizations trapped under the ice and you're seeing structures like this that are similar to what we see in Egypt, well, then maybe those people have that connection and knew how to build these massive pyramids and knew how to move these massive blocks and maybe that technology that ingenuity is still there trapped under the ice they could be looking for some special magnetic device they could be looking for some sort of anti-gravity technology when we look back at some of those you know freezes and inscriptions on the walls a lot of times you see them holding different these different rods interesting thing is is we haven't found those rods you know you go to the different museums and those rods are not there you see the depictions of them you see statues holding rods but the actual rods themselves that were used in ancient egypt are not there some people suspect that those rods were used for this type of technology maybe maybe not um i think that what was used to build the pyramids was was much much older and a different technology but the rods could have certainly been something during dynastic times that we don't quite understand because uh, again they haven't been found so all right everybody we are down to the end of tonight's class uh yeah and tom i'm surprised that there weren't any traps to enter the chambers or is that just hollywood mostly that's just hollywood although you do have to be careful in some areas when you're digging around and things like that ground could be, become unstable or you don't know what's on the other side of the wall uh sort of thing you might fall down a deep shaft uh it's not necessarily a booby trap but uh, you do have to be careful of course and then another thing you do have to be careful of is when you open up a freshly sealed or when you open up a very ancient uh chamber that's been sealed for all of those years you don't really want to necessarily breathe in the air when you first open that door uh not a good idea so and uh and exactly uh it's there's certain bacteria that uh uh you would have to be careful of and that's a good point tom you know what ancient uh you know viruses diseases bacteria what type of things like that might be trapped under the ice ancient uh uh creatures that may come back to life because we've we've seen that with some some animals that uh, that can after long periods of time of being frozen, can't start to move around and live again. So you do have to be uh, careful of that. Uh, last question here from Victoria. If they had rods and used them for work, don't you think the ETs would take them back with them? Do you know of anyone who would leave their tools behind? Well, I mean, we do find evidence of, of ancient tools. I mean, you, you go look in museums, um, you know, you'll see you know, all kinds of different uh tools left around from anything from a hammer and a chisel to you know these different stones that they that they say were, were used as tools so you see that around but you don't see the rods where some people suspect the rods are in private collections that some people have gotten a hold of those and they are now in private collections because they believe in in the power of them so uh all right 
And uh, last comment here from William Prack. Uh, I feel our timeline for civilization is way off. I think we've been around for a long time. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. We see some of these different reports come out. Uh, you'll see, well, uh, we've we've discovered that people have been in this region or you know had this technology or whatever for you know longer than we previously thought. And it keeps going further and further and further back the more that we research. All right, everybody. Thank you again so much for joining me this evening here on Connecting the Universe. Next week, Egypt and Ireland, their connection. Till next time, everybody. Good night.